You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 97, A Coup in Philadelphia. So far in my story, I've not given much focus to Philadelphia beyond discussions of the Continental Congress itself, which was of course located there. The city plays a key role in the revolution beyond simply hosting Congress. I touched on this a little when I talked about the adoption of various state constitutions, but it is such an important topic that I thought it worth devoting an episode to how a political coup in Philadelphia turned Pennsylvania from a conservative colony that leaned Tory into a radical state that looked much more like New England, all in a matter of weeks. To understand this change, it's important to understand the Pennsylvania politics of the time. Before and during the Revolution, Philadelphia was the largest city in British North America. Pennsylvania was one of the last colonies to be created in America, and the only one not touching the Atlantic Ocean. It was mostly an inland wilderness. Despite its late start and geographic limitations, it quickly became a major trading center with a large and growing population. William Penn, of course, founded Pennsylvania when King Charles II gave him land in settlement of a debt that he owed to Penn's father, Admiral William Penn. As an aside, Pennsylvania is actually named after the father, Admiral Penn, not his son, the founder. The colony populated rapidly due to the availability of cheap land and Penn's promise of religious freedom. Penn advertised heavily in the German states and got a large German-speaking population to settle there. Penn was a Quaker and wanted to create a colony that would provide a haven for the Society of Friends. By the 1760s, Quakers had become a minority in the colony. The Quakers, however, dominated the colony's politics mostly because they never altered the voting districts to account for changes in population. The areas in and around Philadelphia, where most Quakers lived, held a disproportionate number of seats. During the French and Indian War, many Quakers had left government not wanting to participate in a war which violated the pacifist tenets of their religion. During this same period, a political split divided the colonial leadership. William Penn's son, Thomas, had become proprietor after his father's death in 1718. Thomas never really got along with the Quaker leadership, and in 1751 he moved back to England. He converted to the Anglican Church a few years later. In 1756, in an attempt to oust Quakers who still dominated the colony's politics, Penn petitioned Parliament to require an oath of loyalty for members of all colonial assemblies. Since Quakers could not take oaths, they would be unable to serve. 
Although this attempt failed, it widened the political schism between the Penn family and the Quaker leadership. The Quakers, supported by others such as Benjamin Franklin and Joseph Galloway, started pushing for an end to rule by the Penn family and to get a royal charter. This is what happened to the only other proprietary colony, North Carolina. The king dissolved the charter and took direct control of the colony, appointing a royal governor. Many leaders from underrepresented areas opposed this move and wanted to keep the proprietors in charge. John Dickinson was a notable member of this faction. That whole fight over the charter dominated politics from the late 50s and early 1760s. It was only when hostility towards Parliament's attempts to tax the colonies that the push for the royal colony faded and the issue of parliamentary taxation took front seat. Once it did, coalitions began to realign. Quaker leaders could not condone revolution against the king. Others in the Royal Colony Coalition jumped into the tax protest movement wholeheartedly. One of those men was Charles Thompson. If you've heard of Thompson ever before, it was probably as Secretary of the Continental Congress. Before he had that job, he was an active radical leader in Philadelphia politics. And Thompson is really an interesting character who largely gets overlooked, so it's worth giving him a little background. Thompson was born in Ulster, Ireland in 1729. His mother died when he was around nine. His father took his six children to Pennsylvania to begin a new life. His father, though, got sick and died during the voyage. Charles and his siblings got distributed to various families, possibly as indentured servants. Charles ran away after learning that he would be apprenticed to a blacksmith. He wanted to get an education. With the assistance of his brother and some others, he enrolled in a school at the New London Academy in Pennsylvania. There he received a classical education. At the age of 21, with some assistance from Benjamin Franklin, Thompson began work as a tutor at the Philadelphia Academy in 1751. He followed Franklin into the anti-proprietary political faction. During the French and Indian War, he served as secretary at the negotiations for the Treaty of Easton. Afterwards, he wrote a book, An Enquiry into the Causes of the Alienation of the Delaware and Shawnees Indians from the British Interest. Thompson strenuously opposed the proprietor's Indian policies. He thought they would only lead to future wars between the colonists and native tribes. Thompson really began to radicalize after the passage of the Stamp Act in 1765. He became a leading organizer of the Sons of Liberty in Philadelphia. In October, he was part of a committee that visited John Hughes to convince, some would use the word threaten, Hughes to resign his appointment as stamp agent for Pennsylvania. Thompson was active on committees of correspondence, which helped to get him known to patriot radicals across the continent. During the tea crisis, he worked with locals Joseph Reed and Thomas Mifflin to prevent any merchants in Philadelphia from receiving any tea from East India Company shipments. Unlike Boston, Philadelphia radicals were able to get the ships to turn around and sail back to London. Philadelphia, therefore, avoided the wrath leveled at Boston for destroying tea. 
Even so, Thompson continued as a radical leader in 1774, fighting against the coercive acts by helping to organize petitions and boycotts. His radical leadership caused John Adams to refer to Thompson as the Samuel Adams of Philadelphia. Thompson was also part of the conspiracy I discussed back in episode 43 to get the conservatives in Pennsylvania to agree to host the First Continental Congress. As a well-respected patriot with good writing skills, but not enough stature to become a delegate, Thompson became the first recording secretary for the First Continental Congress. He would continue in that role with the Second Continental Congress and the Confederation Congress all the way through until 1789. So in early 1776, Thompson, as secretary, had full knowledge of everything happening in Congress, but he was also still a local radical leader in the city, with mobs of patriots available as needed. In the colonies, royal governors had suspended colonial legislatures that had tried to engage in activities against crown policy. This had led patriots setting up shadow provincial legislatures in defiance of royal authority. Pennsylvania never had that problem. The proprietary governor, John Penn, did not prevent the assembly from meeting. He kept a low profile and mostly allowed politics to follow its own course. The Pennsylvania Assembly itself remained pretty conservative. The Quaker leadership stressed as part of its religious foundation that they should not resist government policies or question the leadership in London. At most, colonists should submit petitions requesting changes. Trade embargoes and other efforts to force policy changes were simply unacceptable. The notion of taking up arms against British soldiers was completely out of the question. Over the early 1770s, though, Quakers found themselves in an increasingly untenable situation. If they did not support trade embargoes and other patriot efforts to protect colonial rights, they were seen as traitors to the colony. As a result, many Quakers simply withdrew from politics, they did not run for re-election, and did not speak out in newspapers or public meetings. Other conservatives took their place. Some were former Quakers, some were Anglicans who were also traditionally loyal to the king and who were still willing to speak out. Many replacements, though, were also willing to back the Patriots. As this change in leadership took place, the split between proprietary and royal factions in the colony also faded away. Men who were on opposite sides of that fight found themselves working together. For example, Joseph Galloway, who had favored a royal charter along with men like Benjamin Franklin and Charles Thompson, now found himself increasingly at odds with his former allies as he found himself more closely allied with the Tories. John Dickinson, who had been a supporter of a proprietary government and a political opponent of Franklin and Thompson, now found himself increasingly allied with his former opponents as they embraced the Patriot movement. Now, all legislators, of course, were elected politicians. Those who wanted to continue in their seats had to reflect the will of the voters. To push the assembly in the right direction, Philadelphia radicals formed local, unelected groups to lobby the legislature for changes. Many radical elements lived outside Philadelphia in the more rural areas to the north and west. Within the city, one of the most radical groups was the city's mechanics. 
these were skilled artisans and workmen that made up much of the city's workforce. They were already organized into trade groups. Under the leadership of Charles Thompson, they spoke loudly in support of trade embargoes and enforcing them on the merchants. The mechanics also used their political power to demand the creation of increasingly larger committees. There was the Committee of 19, then 43, then 66, and then 100. These committees sought to create a more reasonable political balance since the Assembly was still unfairly weighted in favor of conservative districts in and around Philadelphia. The committees focused on enforcement of trade restrictions, using mob pressure to intimidate or punish those who refused to comply. After Lexington and Concord, the committees began to form armed militia. Unlike New England or the southern colonies, Pennsylvania had almost no militia tradition. What little they had existed in local communities on the western frontier, where Indian attacks posed much more risk. Even these militia did not normally receive much support from the Quaker government back east. In April 1775, news of fighting in Massachusetts resulted in groups, most prominently the mechanics, demanding that the colony form militia units in defense of their rights. The Committee of 66 took an active role in organizing and training active militia. Within weeks, the Patriots had 30 new militia companies. The committee requested that the Assembly allocate 50,000 pounds in new currency to fund the new army. The Assembly had funded militia in the past. In the 1750s, it had allocated for defense of Western territories before and during the French and Indian War. Using militia, however, in obvious defiance of royal authority, would be far more controversial. Now, it's not like the Assembly was entirely loyalist. Around this same time, the Assembly rejected the governor's proposal to accept Lord North's compromise offer, something the Continental Congress had already rejected. Even while it rejected diplomatic compromise, the Assembly was not quite ready to hand over 50,000 pounds sterling to an extra-legal committee that was forming its own army. However, it did agree to allocate 2,000 pounds for expenses already incurred and another 5,000 for future costs. The Assembly did seem willing to accommodate at least some Patriot demands. Well, funding aside, there was some fighting between the Radicals and Moderates in late 1775 over the militia. Radicals viewed paying a small subsection of the colony to remain in ranks for an extended period of time as a standing army. That, of course, was a sign of tyranny. They argued that all able-bodied men in the colony should be required to participate in the militia. This, of course, was a real problem for Quakers and other pacifist groups with religious objections. It was the subject of heated debates for many months. The Assembly refused to act on radical demands, and the militia remained a body of paid volunteers. But the debate over militia paled in comparison to the debate that began at the end of 1775. As you will recall, back in episode 81, this was about the time Thomas Paine published Common Sense. The debate over independence became the topic of discussion in Pennsylvania, as it was in all the other colonies. The issue of independence seemed to upset many Quakers 
even more than the idea of universal military service. On January 20, 1776, the Society's elders issued a public declaration which said in part, The setting up and putting down kings and governments is God's peculiar prerogative for causes best known to himself, and it is not our business to have any hand or contrivance therein, but to pray for our king and the safety of our nation and the good of all men, that we may live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty under government which God is pleased to set over us. There was no way to finesse or compromise on independence. There was no way the assembly would support it. Independence horrified Quakers and other conservatives in the state. It formed a split among the many solid patriots. Leaders like John Dickinson and Robert Morris have been outspoken advocates of strictly enforced trade embargoes and creating militia. But even they balked at independence. These were men who thrived under the colonial system. Many feared they could not defeat Britain militarily and would be hanged as traitors. Even if Pennsylvania did somehow win independence, they had no idea how much chaos and disorder would arise from the lack of a central government to keep these crazies in line. The hardcore radicals, however, pushed even harder to get Pennsylvania to support independence. The Patriot Committee of 100 still contained a mix of leaders across the political spectrum. In February, Patriots held elections for a new Committee of 100. This committee was made up of many more working-class Patriots who were much more enthusiastic about independence. Many more moderate Patriots, like Morris and Dickinson, got kicked off the committee. This new Radical Committee of 100 began making more demands on the legislature for militia funds and for support for independence. The Assembly, however, would not roll over. The committee did get them to agree to some redistricting, giving some Western and more Radical districts more representation in the Assembly, but it was still not enough to get a majority to support independence in the Assembly. The colony held assembly elections in May to fill the new seats. Radicals seeking independence fought a bitter contest for more radical representatives, but most of their candidates lost. This was a combination of a strong turnout by Quakers to oppose radical candidates, combined with the fact that many radicals had joined militia units and had gone to New York City to help with the defense there. There were no absentee ballots at this time. Most historians seem to think that the population was pretty evenly split. Even though the elections favored the moderates, in the days following the elections, a couple of events turned the momentum in favor of the radicals. First, Pennsylvanians received word that King George had hired 20,000 mercenaries to crush the rebellion. Use of foreign mercenaries greatly outraged the colonists. If the king would use outsiders, Many colonists dropped reservations about declaring independence and bringing France on their side. Secondly, around this same time, the British warships Roebuck and Liverpool sailed up the Delaware River and engaged in a firefight with colonial gunships, something I discussed a couple of weeks ago. Although these ships were turned away, it brought home the reality 
that war was coming to Pennsylvania. Sensing momentum on their side and unable to get the assembly to act, the radicals tried another tactic. On May 20th, a few days after the Continental Congress passed a resolution for colonies to form new governments, 4,000 radicals appeared in front of the State House, what we today call Independence Hall. While the Continental Congress was meeting on the first floor, the Pennsylvania Assembly was meeting on the second floor. The radical mob, which listened to speeches by some radical delegates, including Thomas McKean, wanted not only independence, but a new government for Pennsylvania. They called for a constitutional convention to replace the Assembly. The Committee of 100 then called for an election of delegates to this convention. On what legal basis did the committee have for this? Well, none really. They were simply counting on the people to support it and for the government to have no power to obstruct it. Although momentum seemed to be in favor of the radicals, the leaders set up the convention to ensure the result they wanted. First, they gave equal representation to each county. This gave far more power to the less populated western counties where radical sentiment was far more popular. Second, they required all delegates to forswear allegiance to the king and to support whatever government the people chose. Third, they opened up voting to any male over the age of 21 who had been assessed for taxes. With no minimum property requirement, this increased the voter pool from 50 to 90 percent across the state. The Assembly, seeing this attack on its power, appointed a committee to evaluate whether they should change their instructions to the delegates on independence. The head of this committee was none other than John Dickinson, himself a delegate and one of the leading opponents of independence. The new instructions were muddled. It did not require the delegates to oppose independence, but did not require them to support it either. Since the majority of the Pennsylvania delegation still opposed independence, it did not seem to change the outcome. Clearly, though, the actions of the Patriots to create an extra-legal convention and force their issue despite having lost the recent elections, made this change possible. By July, the delegation was still 4-3 to three against independence. We'll see how that plays out next week when I discuss the Continental Congress's vote on independence. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. 
This week, I had the opportunity to attend a live presentation about Fort Billingsport, one of the defensive forts that the Patriots built along the Delaware River to help defend Philadelphia. One of the presenters there was Dave Salvatore, a Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon for this podcast. Dave is a Revolutionary War enthusiast who also produces the daily podcast Today in American Revolution History. It's a short five-minute podcast each day, covering some anniversary of the era. If you haven't checked it out already, you should. His podcast is available on iTunes and other sites, and you can visit his website at AmericanRevolutionToday.com. Also, for my online recommendation this week, I want to recommend Archive.org. If you've read my blog, Almost every free ebook I recommend comes from archive.org. The site contains millions of public domain books and other works that are extremely helpful to researching the Revolution. It contains many primary documents as well. In some cases, newer books still under copyright are also available for free temporary use as well. You can read the documents online, download them in a variety of formats, including plain text and PDF. You can also download them to your Kindle. The site is run by a nonprofit group. It's a great resource, which makes my research for this podcast so much easier. If I'm ever looking for an old out-of-print book, which is probably almost a daily occurrence for me, archive.org is usually my first stop. So this week's episode looked at the overthrow of the Pennsylvania government. This change was absolutely critical to getting the colony on board for independence. There were obviously quite a few radical leaders who worked to make this happen, but I focused on Charles Thompson, mostly because he was in the unique position of working well equally with the elite patriot leaders as well as the working class groups that formed the necessary street mobs to put the pressure on government. Thompson's insights on the formation of the country could have made him one of the best sources of information for historians. During the whole time he sat in the Congresses, Thompson wrote an insider's view of the politics that went on through this whole period. He recorded all the deals and maneuvers that delegates used to get everything done. After he retired, he burned the only copy. He decided he did not want to destroy the heroic myths that had grown around the Founding Fathers and spoil all that by publishing all the dirty details. So this historic treasure trove got tossed in the fireplace, lost forever to history. So sadly, therefore, we do not have that as a resource, and Thompson lost his chance to become one of the most important primary sources for the founding of the United States. Nevertheless, some historians have made an effort to delve into the world of Pennsylvania colonial politics to see how this change took place, overthrowing the loyalist elites that controlled the colony and putting in place one of the most radical revolutionary governments in North America. The book I found most useful for this is The Revolution is Now Begun, The Radical Committees of Philadelphia, 1765-1776, to by Richard Allen Ryerson. This book, published in 1978, takes a close look at the demographics and other details of Pennsylvania's changing leadership and how radicals were able to push their way into power. The book reads more like a college textbook than an easy-read book meant for more popular consumption but it is well-researched and has many interesting details and statistics to explain what happened. 
Ryerson is an independent scholar who worked at the David Library of the American Revolution for many years. He also spent a great many years managing the John Adams papers. He has a more recent book on John Adams as well. His book, Radical Committees of Philadelphia, is not too long, just over 300 pages, 50 of that being appendix and index. It is rather dense with lots of charts and statistics. It is probably better for research than for casual reading. But if you want to learn more about Pennsylvania politics leading up to independence, this is a great resource. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.